from the classroom to the emergency room, OR and beyond. You're joining Trauma ICU Rounds with your host, Dr. Dennis Kim. I think particularly now in 2020 and the pandemic and everything and all the impacts that it's having, I think everyone recognizing it's okay to not be okay. So similar to, okay, we need to acknowledge that call is not physiologically normal, right? Like we realize that we need to prepare for that. I think recognizing that, yeah, one third of trauma surgeons scream positive for depression. 40% of us scream positive for PTSD. I think being aware of that is huge because I think a big part of the problem is we don't talk about it. We're not aware of it. We push it aside. We step over it. We try to move it, right? It's another piece of baggage. We just try to move around it. And then all of a sudden you're standing in a room and you can't move because you're surrounded by baggage. That's Dr. Jamie Coleman, our guest professor on Rounds this week, who I had the opportunity to sit down and chat with just prior to the new year. Dr. Coleman is a trauma and acute care surgeon at Denver Health. She completed her BA and medical doctorate at the University of Tennessee, followed by her residency in general surgery at Rush University Medical Center, Cook County Hospital in Chicago, Illinois. Further, Dr. Coleman completed a two-year fellowship in trauma surgical critical care at Emory University, Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia. From Memphis to Cook County to Grady, I think it's pretty obvious that Jamie is no stranger to working hard and that she's dedicated to caring for the vulnerable and underserved. Additionally, Dr. Coleman is a medical media expert, public speaker, and a wonderful and gifted writer as well as blogger. Personally, I think she offers a fresh and really unique perspective on how we can better navigate work-life challenges amid a demanding and what can certainly be at times tumultuous surgical career. In 2019, Dr. Coleman published the results of a prospective study titled To Sleep, Perchance to Dream, Acute and Chronic Sleep Deprivation in Acute Care Surgeons. The goal of the study was to determine the prevalence and patterns of sleep deprivation in acute care surgeons, and they found a few interesting findings. First, and perhaps not surprisingly, sleep patterns consistent with acute and chronic sleep deprivation are common among acute care surgeons. Second, these worsen on post-call day two, and I've personally always found that it's not the post-call day, but the post-post-call day that you're really dragging yourself out of bed. And finally, baseline sleep patterns were not recovered until post-call day number three. I think this study really helped to pave the way for the super trial a multi-center study of over 200 acute care surgeons that Jamie's leading in which WHOOP technology is being used to help us understand the sleep and recovery patterns of trauma surgeons. Her goal? To improve the lives of her colleagues and to help us better manage the effects of call, depression, mood disorders, anxiety, and post-traumatic stress disorder. So, Dr. Coleman, always great to sit down and catch up with you. I know you just wrapped up a Grand Rounds presentation, and on top of that, you're on call, so why don't we just jump right in? You know, when I look at the results of your recent research, although it's directed at practicing acute care surgeons, it really seems to me that a lot of the findings and results are applicable to medical professionals outside of our specialty and across medicine, irrespective of discipline, level of training, or even type of practice. I mean, we're talking about resilience, wellness, sleep, and the formation of healthy habits. Sleep is huge. And I have to say, you know, sleep, 
sleep is the mirror of your soul. I like that. And that if you're unhappy, if you're stressed, if you have a lot going on, it shows up in your sleep, the lack thereof, the patterns of sleep, difficulty falling asleep, falling asleep early. It, it really is the mirror to your soul. And I have to believe that regardless of whether you're a surgeon or in medicine, that you're struggling with sleep or have struggled with sleep at some point in the past six months. Yeah. And the physical and emotional impact of sleep deprivation, because then you just get into this bad cycle. Oh yeah. You're depressed. You're anxious. You can't sleep well. You get poor sleep. And we know when you get poor sleep, negative emotions are exacerbated. Feelings of depression increase. Everything feels bigger, right? When you're, when you are post-call and you know, you've got your mindset on those leftovers in your fridge, you know, from that really nice dinner that you had and you walk in your house and you figure out your spouse ate it, your child <laughs> ate it, the dog ate it, whatever, you know, your favorite piece of cake, the last piece of cake was there, whatever it is. Been there. It feels soul crushing when you're tired. Your ability to adapt emotionally and respond to stress is so impacted by poor sleep. It just, then you get in this cycle and it's hard to get out of it. You know, it's so funny that you say that because I can actually picture myself at morning report or pass-ons mm -hmm. and all the faculty are there with the pre-on-call and post-call house staff. And when I'm post-call, even the, the slightest suggestion that we should have done something a little bit differently oh. or someone disagrees with the plans that I've set with the residents. And, and sometimes it's a sarcastic remark and my partners are my buddies and I take it so seriously. Yep. And most of the time, I'm the one normally instigating things. You got to remember if you're not sleeping well, you're doing long shifts, calls, what have you, and not taking care of yourself, no one's going to do it for you. Yep. And I think one of the things that you've pointed out previously is that it's not just the lack of sleep on call, but we're going into call not well rested. And so based on the results of your research, it takes a few days before you actually get some REM and actually get some reasonable amount of sleep and restoration. And, and that's what sleep is. We're restoring, rejuvenating, and regenerating ourselves, our bodies, and minds and it seems to be a key contributor to wellness. Yes. It's one of those things that's so easy to overlook or forget yes. and not easy to do sometimes. And so it's funny that you mentioned the sarcasm thing. And in my background, you know, reading for this, it was funny. It's one of my favorite papers this day. It's your ability to actually detect sarcasm. Here we go. Is measurably limited when you're sleep deprived. <laughs> Of course, no doubt. Right? But I mean, you know, it's funny because I'm with you. My my humor tends to be on the, I think a lot of surgeons, right? Our humor tends to be on the sarcastic side of things. But it goes towards how we interact with people. Just being able to detect that someone's joking with us. Right, right. It's harder to do when you haven't slept. And I think you really hit the nail on the head um, with this question in that, it's funny. So I was traveling a lot, which I love to travel, go to my friends, get to see them, 
um, trade war stories, you know, and talk about this research. And it was interesting, though. I was on a flight. Now, that being said, I don't always like to, you know, just chummy up with the person next to me on a flight. On this flight, it was going to be a long flight. I was flying to the UK. I teach a course with the Royal College of Surgeons, which I love. It's one of the, it actually is the favorite, my favorite course to teach. Oh, which one is that? It is DSTS. It is very similar to our asset, but it is for attending level surgeons. So like, you're not teaching people how to dissect. You're teaching people who are vested. Right. Right. They're on the front lines in the UK. We And, and it's an international course. So we get surgeons from all over. Great. And they're just so eager to learn. Right. And it's really, I love teaching it because it's not just trauma 101. It's really the tips and tricks, you know? It's the advanced sort of techniques. How do you really deal with that bad liver bleeding? How do you expose this? You know, let's pack here. Let's pull here. Make your incision here. It's really all the kind of the fine points. So I love teaching it. And uh, so I was on this flight and this gentleman gets on next to me and starts chatting with me. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be a long flight. And he was (laughs) an Australian pilot who was here in Denver Uh, Denver has a, which I did not know, but I now know, Denver has a really high-tech pilot simulation center. Oh, very cool. And what I found out is I also didn't know that pilots, regardless of how long you've been flying, every six months have to do an in-person simulation. So it's not taking a test. It's not online. It's not multiple choice. And it's real. I mean, he says, like, if they're going to simulate a fire, they will throw smoke in the cockpit. They will raise the temperature. So it doesn't matter if you've been flying for five months or 15 years, you have to do this every six months. Wow. And so that's kind of another conversation because that kind of caught me down that whole kind sure. of route in terms of how we stay up on skills. But the thing, he said this to me and it just stuck with me. He said, the hardest lesson to teach a young pilot is that preparation, the best preparation for the air is the preparation you do on the ground. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how that stuck with me, which is what you're alluding to, is that in my first study, looking at 17 acute care surgeons, this was when I was on faculty back in Indiana. Indiana. Mm -hmm. Excluding nights of call, we averaged 6.54 hours of sleep a night, not including call. And what's interesting is that then if you start look at literature on sleep deprivation in patient populations that average less than six and a half hours of sleep a night, you have an increased mortality risk. That's frightening. And so if you really think about it, we're averaging 6.54 hours, not including call. You throw a call and you know <laughs> we are oh, yeah. way under that average. Way, way under. And that's when it hit me though, right? Is that there's really this, there's, there's multiple sides to this coin. A lot of times we focus on our hours in the hospital and how many hours should those be and how should those look. We absolutely still need to explore that from a research and data standpoint. Sure. But also, what are we doing at home to optimize ourselves for when we're in the hospital? And I think to me, that's really the low-hanging fruit. You know, it was funny when I started researching this and people were like, well, of course, you're just going to find that we're all tired. Yes. And we know that patients who weigh themselves regularly weigh less. Yeah. Hawthorne effect. We react to data. 
which is why lately some of us don't want to step on the scale because we know we don't really want to know. It's the COVID-19. It's real. It's real. It's real. real. And, but interestingly, how I view this is our specialty stepping on the scale. Where are we? What do we really look like? Because in order to say something other than we're just tired, we have to look at the whys and the hows and the what's of the tired. And so I think for me, really, the, especially that first study, but even with the current study, we just concluded the super trial, the surgeon performance trial. We had almost 250 surgeons across the country wear a whoop device for six months continuously. Um, I do not have a financial disclosure with a company. I pay them for the devices. There's no financial relationship. And I'm swimming in data now. It is insane. You know, I tell people the first study I did was 17 surgeons for three months. We had over 1,400 nights of just data. Well, now I have six months of almost 250 surgeons from over 30 states, over 30 centers, variety of centers, level ones, level twos, community, academic. So yes, the good news is I'm swimming in data. And, you know, it's also just taking us a little bit longer to sort through it all and really get the best information we can out of it. But, you know, it's until we know what we're actually doing. The real goal of this is to figure out how should we be working? Right. How many trauma surgeons does it take? No idea. Right? Yeah. We've been bad at this. We have been so bad at this as a specialty, right? If you look through our emergency medicine colleagues or anesthesia colleagues or pulmonary critical care colleagues, other colleagues who provide 24-hour service coverage, not in 24-hour chunks because they're all smarter than us, <laughs> um, but kind of a 1.0, like what a full-time person works in those fields, it's pretty consistent across the country. Right. For sure. And we have not done that. And so I think, you know, there's multiple layers here. There's the low-hanging fruit. What can we do differently to prepare ourselves? What do we need to do out of the hospital to prepare ourselves for in the hospital? But also, I think, really kind of tackling some of these bigger systemic questions. How should we work? How many trauma surgeons does your hospital need? And I don't think we really know the answers to that yet. And hopefully this data from Super Trial is going to get us there. Oh, really looking forward to seeing some of that data. And I'm sure a lot of folks are going to learn a lot from that in terms of talking about preparing. So, you know, it's the day before call and I've got a pretty well-structured schedule. We've now got eight partners or eight of us in our group. It's a big group. Used to be that we were taking one in three or one in four call for what seemed like years. And it was brutal. Um, And that was at the beginning. And so, you know, at that time, not knowing any better, well, this is sort of trial by fire. If, if I can make it here at Harbor at this county level one and yep. do this one in three or one in four, I've made it. You know, I can go anywhere and do anything. Yep. But I was not well. I mean, I don't think physically from you talked about weight. I think from a weight standpoint, I had put on a lot of weight since, you know, medical school and overeating and not exercising and eventually staying up late not sleeping well. And it's just like we said, this ripple effect that kind of takes hold. And it takes a while to hopefully catch yourself or have a partner who's very honest and straightforward with you. Or sometimes something really bad has to happen until you realize, ooh, I can't keep going down this path. 
And so you seem to be a good example or model of wellness. You're doing a lot out there. You're being academically productive. You're doing very well from a career standpoint. So what's the secret? Maybe you can take our listeners, many of whom are going to be students, residents, and fellows. Do you have some sort of ritual or routine to help you get ready for going into battle? I think the first step is, is to recognize the battle. For sure. I think so many of us, you know, it's a little bit of Stockholm syndrome and that I started taking in-house call at the age of 22 as a third year medical student and tw- almost 20 years later, um, <laughs> details, Minor. um, it's a little bit of, I'm so used to taking call. I'm so used to this concept or this idea that I'm going to go into the hospital one day and not leave until the next day or sometimes even the day after that I think we lose that idea that it's even something to pay attention to. We lose the, we lose that newness or that feeling that it's something we should prepare for. Right. You know, I mean, if I walked around and told people, Hey, you're going to run a marathon tomorrow. You're probably going to do something a little bit different today. Yeah. You would hope so. <laughs> right. Yeah. But looking at the data and realizing that we are treating a night before call, a night before we know we're going to be potentially up without any sleep at all, we don't do anything differently. So I think the first step that I like to tell people is just to say, it's not to say that it's bad. And that's the thing, right? There's so much of, oh, well, then, you know, you're saying that we shouldn't work this much or we shouldn't take call. And I'm like, listen, people, people are going to get shot. People are going to get injured at two o'clock in the morning. People are going to need us. Absolutely. What I'm saying is, but we should be smart about it. So I think first things first is really looking at your schedule and recognizing that our schedule makes a physical, emotional impact on us. I think the second thing is, really, really, really get in tune with your sleep. I will say people who wear a device, who wear a whoop, the, a huge percentage of our participants in the super trial uh, are continuing to wear it because they realize that it gave them a tool to improve their lives. I think one of the coolest things with super trial is that when people started seeing how bad their sleep was. Yeah. I got text messages and emails and calls from people who are like, you know what? I then went home and I had a conversation with my spouse about it. And I showed them my data. You know what? Now my spouse cooks dinner when I'm post-call. Now my spouse, you know, takes the kids out so I can actually get a nap when I get home. You know, they're making real changes, but none of, they, are they any more tired wearing the whoop than they were before? No. Right. The difference is data and looking at it. So I think number one, recognizing that you need to do things differently. And then I think secondly, really having a gut check with yourself. How is your sleep? Are you on your phone in bed? Are you watching TV in bed? Are you, is the sleep temperature, is the temperature in your room the way it should be? Um, Are you, how many, 
you know, ambient lights or using blackout shades, um, you know, all of the kind of sleep hygiene things that, you know, we talk about, but I think just saying sleep better is like telling an obese patient to just eat less. Right. Lose some weight. Right. We need plans. So, and I think it is individualized, but thinking about the use of melatonin, sleep masks, blue light blockers, um, really having a good sleep hygiene where you don't watch TV in bed, you're off your phone, you're off social media before you go to bed, um, going to bed at the same time. And then I'm just going to say it. We talked about beverages. Oh, don't go there. Uh, This doesn't make me popular, (laughs) but I will tell you after now having looked at my sleep, the impact of even one, even one alcoholic beverage on me personally. Now the literature will suggest two, two alcoholic beverages, but intake of alcohol absolutely directly impacts and impairs healthy sleep. So as much as everyone's like, what you're telling me I shouldn't have my nightcap. And I'm like, yep. Or (laughs) just have your nightcap when you walk in the door. Right. I mean, but try to get at least two hours alcohol free before you go to sleep. And it was interesting. The first study that was done with whoop was actually minor league baseball players. And they tracked these guys, Hawthorne effect, right? They tracked them through the course of the study with them. They all started going to bed earlier. They all started sleeping more, sleeping better. And they all like decreased their amount of drinking. Isn't that interesting? You know, there are things that we can do starting tomorrow to help us feel better. And I think really researching them, thinking about yourself and your sleep habits and what you can do is a huge, is a huge start. Yeah. I mean, I think you bring up some really important and interesting points, especially when it comes to simple things like TV in the bedroom or the devices and social media and that blue screen. I mean, I can't tell you how many nights I've been on my Twitter with the evil endless scroll and you get off, but the neurotransmitters have been stimulated and I close my eyes and it's like they're not closed and I can't fall asleep. And that's with melatonin. And so one of the things that I have discovered recently is a weighted blanket. And I'm not sure if this is something that you've used or tried, but really at this point, I think anything I can do to optimize falling and staying asleep is totally worth it. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. You know, it's uh, it's funny. One day my husband looks over at me and goes, when did you get so high maintenance with your sleep? <laughs> and I was like, what are you talking about? As I adjust my memory foam cooling pillow with my cooling silk pillowcase, my weighted blanket. Oh, nice. My eye mask that's like, you know, a memory foam blackout <laughs> eye mask. And then, you know, as I switch on the fan, <laughs> right? Awesome. So I have like the overhead fans. Sometimes we have the overhead plus like a stand fan, like all the things, right? But I think it's funny because all these sleep adjuncts, and again, everyone's different. So some work better for others, but it's real. And when we start talking about 10% more slow wave sleep or 10% more REM sleep, you know, you mentioned earlier, which was such a great point. Sleep is restoration. 
It's when 90% of our growth hormone is released. So especially for athletes or as a, uh, even a non-professional athlete, you know, but someone who, if you're exercising, yeah. if you're trying to make fitness gains, growth hormone, that's what's repairing your muscles. That's what's repairing your body. So, and then REM sleep is really what helps repair our mind together. You know, these are the processes that help seal in the things that we've learned that day. Procedural memory, especially for surgeons, surgeons in training, your audience, you saw something that day and you want to remember it, get a good night's sleep. In addition to other things, you know, like studying. I don't want it to be Dr. Coleman said, I just need to sleep more, but (laughs) it, it isn't just about waking up and feeling refreshed. It's about having your memory, your skills, everything really enhanced and set in your brain so that when you walk into the hospital, you can manage that trauma, right? Because trauma is so unique. Um, I'm biased. As am I. Uh, I think we're both a little biased. Uh, we love it. But it really is. It's not like you can just sit and pull out your book the night before. Because you know what you're doing the next day. We have no idea what we're doing the next day. I mean, I'm on call tonight. It's 3 p.m. here. I start calling an hour. I don't know what I'm doing 61 minutes from now. <laughs> For sure. right? It's part of the beauty of the job. So it it makes sense. We have to have our skills and our experience at the ready. And having our memory and that procedural memory really um, fine-tuned is just so important for us to be able to pull it out and access it within seconds because that's what trauma patients really need. In addition to sleep, what other sorts of things are you doing to maintain your health, to maintain an optimistic outlook on life, and to keep you sharp and ready to go? I think it's a few things. I think number one is, I think particularly now in 2020 and the pandemic and everything and all the impacts that it's having, I think number one, recognizing it's okay to not be okay. Mm, I love that. So similar to, okay, we need to acknowledge that call is not physiologically normal, right? Like we realize that we need to prepare for that. I think recognizing that, yeah. One third of trauma surgeons scream positive for depression. 40% of us scream positive for PTSD. I think being aware of that is huge because I think a big part of the problem is we don't talk about it. We're not aware of it. We push it aside. We step over it. We try to move it, right? It's another piece of baggage. We just try to move around it. And then all of a sudden you're standing in a room and you can't move because you're surrounded by baggage. So I really think it's acknowledging our feelings and then learning how to process them through meditation, spiritual practices, prayer, confession, um, therapy, whether it's with a psychiatrist, psychologist, counselor, therapist, learning how to process the emotions. Because then you'll remember the baggage, but you're not trying to maneuver around it. You've got room to move. And to me, that's resilience. Resilience is not that nothing bad ever happens to you. Of course. It's that bad things have happened and you've learned how to maneuver through it. Right. Not around it, not over it, not ignoring it, but acknowledging it. Said, hey, that bad patient outcome, 
that traumatic thing that I saw, telling that father that his wife is dead, taking the time to acknowledge it and honor those experiences by working through them. Again, some really, really fantastic points, Dr. Coleman. And I I think that you bring up some really important concepts, traits like resilience and grit. I think the one thing that I'd really like to emphasize is that those attributes are not necessarily innate or inherent, but characteristics or traits that we can actively develop, flourish, and nurture as we go through our careers. And these carry over from our professional to personal lives as well. And by doing some of the things that you mentioned, mindfulness practice, meditation, visualization, or simply just talking with people, professional and non-professional, and acknowledging that these horrible things have happened, and that might put us in a better position to process our emotions, fears, and and self-doubts. Now, to this day, unfortunately, it still seems like there is this stigma surrounding mental health professionals or seeking, God forbid, seeking mental health expertise. And as you mentioned, PTSD, acute stress disorder, depression, substance and alcohol use disorders, these are all much more prevalent among trauma surgeons and surgeons in general. So what do we do? What can we do as healthcare professionals to overcome these dated and honestly just obsolete ridiculous perceptions of mental health. You know, it's, I'm so glad you brought this up because for people who don't realize, we lose the equivalent of a medical school class of an average size medical school class every year to physician suicide. Every year, we lose an entire graduating medical school class. And I think to a certain extent, We've done a little bit of that to ourselves in that when we talk about stigma, it's because it's real. I mean, as you know, you know, a lot of states, you're filling out medical licensure forms, you're filling out credentialing forms, and they flat out ask you, have you had any psychiatric diagnoses? And it's not even just, you know, something that you would think would be obvious that would impact your job. But I mean, you know, have you ever seen a counselor or a therapist? You know, all these things they ask, and it depends on the state and it depends on the hospital. But you start clicking yes, and you start having problems getting licensed. So I think it's twofold. I think one is there's a real, it's not even a stigma. I mean, there's a real detriment to reporting or to acknowledging that you are struggling from a mental health standpoint, if you are a physician. And then, yeah, there is this stigma, right? In terms of, I don't want my colleagues to think I can't do this. I don't want my colleagues to think that, you know, I'm losing my mind or I, you know, need a sabbatical. And That's the kicker on all this is that if I am asking and we as physicians are asking our colleagues and our other physicians to acknowledge the trauma that we expose ourselves to. And I'm like, well, okay, cool. Try some meditation. Make sure you're sleeping. Here's some melatonin, right? (laughs) Right. But at some point, 
we really need more than that. Absolutely. And so I do. I mean, I think that's a huge area in which we need to improve. We need to improve support systems. We need to improve our culture. We need to improve how we talk about it. And we need to improve what we're asking physicians to report. I'll tell you, people, I I have heard it. I have heard colleagues say, I'm not going to go do that because then I got to start clicking yes to boxes. And that's a problem. Yeah, I mean, that is a huge problem. And, you know, the job we do is not an easy one. And eventually things will catch up with you, especially if you're suppressing them or not talking about them. And I remember just last year, my my father-in-law, Mike, who I consider my dad and who I, I love, you know, passed away pretty unexpectedly and suddenly on St. Patrick's Day. And you know, that was obviously a huge hit. But at the same time, I remember I was taking call between a couple of different places and literally had one golden weekend per month. And I remember very clearly uh, heading into call one day and a colleague of mine had experienced the ultimate family tragedy in which I was actually involved, not in the role of a colleague or friend, but rather as a provider in the ICU. And heading into work on Monday, I remember being exhausted, tired, and just emotionally drained. And after morning report, one of my partners asked me if I was okay. And I literally just broke down. I mean, I was broken. And I think the point I want to bring up is that it's it's so important for us to recognize that all of us have our struggles and that they don't necessarily manifest in the same way. For some people, it might be being late to work or being just a little less enthusiastic. And sometimes it's pretty obvious, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so I think the point I want to make is we just need to be a little bit more gentle, not just with ourselves, but with others as well. But to get back to what we were talking about earlier, so obviously sleep is important, but one of the other things that you did mention, Jamie, was the system and the structure. And here at Harbor UCLA, we're still doing 24-hour call shifts. They never end up being 24 hours, in fact, and we usually go way over that because there's just so much to do post-call. And in fact, I'm here in my call room slash office doing this interview with you, as I'm sure you are. What's the data? Have you seen anything that's shown that moving to shifts is in fact better or superior to 24-hour calls? And what are you guys doing over at Denver? This is actually one of my favorite topics uh, in this because I think it's so multifaceted, right? Because we look back, ACGME, we graduate about approximately 1,000 general surgery residents a year. And have done that number for over 20 years, right? But then you're taking that thousand and then you're saying, okay, these people are going into breast, colorectal, minimally invasive, vascular, plastics, you know, all the specialties you can think of vascular and trauma is one of them. But I think it's a supply issue. And I'm just going to say it. I think there's also a demand issue. And it's interesting. You know, I referenced this course in the UK and I was in London and like, oh, well, yeah, we took the city and we divided it into quadrants and, you know, looked at population maps and 
um, statistics. And these are the four trauma centers. And they're basically in the northeast corner, northwest, southwest, southeast, right? So right now, in my opinion, we have a supply and a demand issue. We have a supply issue and we have a demand issue because it's state dependent as to who is what trauma verification level. In other words, how many trauma surgeons do you need for one level one? But then how many do you need for this level one, this level two? And then this city has three level ones, but maybe they don't really need three level ones, right? So personally, I think from a system standpoint, it's interesting because really in order to completely fix it, we would need a complete overhaul, right? We would have to have some data, statistics, how many, what population density do you need to get yourself a level one versus level two? What's your, what's your traffic patterns, right? Like all the things that go into it. So I think right now we have trauma centers that exist that still need a certain number of surgeons to staff that 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365. Mm-hmm. But then do we need that plus the other level one plus this plus that? So I think overall we do have a demand issue because it hasn't been a needs-based verification assessment. And I think we have a supply issue with our ACGME, the number of spots being stagnant. The 12 versus 24 my personal bias is that I think the 12 hour might be better if, if, because I don't think we do the if, which is why I'm actually not it. I personally would prefer to do a 24 is because we don't treat it like a 12. Again, this is where we're very different from a lot of our other shift, like a true shift work mentality is they show up before their shift and they leave after. That's why I don't say I work shifts. I work calls because I'm here before, I'm here after, doing research, operating, elective surgery, clinic, ICU rounds, trauma, right? Like our job is so unique in that it really extends beyond just trauma call. So I think if you're going to treat it as a 12, I think if you're going to sleep in late, I think if you're going to exercise, you're going to relax. You're going to walk in right before your call and you're going to walk out right after and go to sleep, take a nap. Yes, I'm sure that's better than a 24, but we don't do that. I mean, it's a culture thing, right? Like if we walk in the hospital after 730 in the morning, we feel like we're like sneaking in and we need like a, like a late pass, right? Like that's, there's nothing more stressful in my life than actually potentially showing up late to work. Right. Like that is my greatest fear, which is why I'm always here 15 minutes before I need to be here. But I guarantee you. So like tonight, right? Let's, I'm on call tonight. Technically, my call starts in 46 minutes. I've been here all day seeing elective surgery patients, answering questions from clinic about outpatients, doing EMR, ugh, um, emails, you know, podcasts, grand rounds, academics, meeting with people, meetings. So technically on paper, it looks like I'm going to work 14 hours. But then tomorrow, we've got morning report. Then we have our education hour where we do ICU rounds, bedside ICU rounds. I'm not leaving tomorrow before noon. Although now I'm talking about it, I'm like really tempted. Um, (laughs) That would be nice. But 
you see my point in that I think personally there are on paper several trauma centers across the country that only quote unquote do 12s. But then that's during the week and then they do 24 hours on the weekends and some places do night float. I'll have more data after super trial with that. I think again, it goes down to, are you going to protect that time before or after? Because if not, just call it a 24, you know, call it a spade a spade and make it a 24 and get your call done versus stretching out to twice as many 12 hours in which you're not really treating it as a 12 hour. Obviously there's data to show 12 hour daytime is better than a 24 hour overnight. But I mean, that's, you know, so I, I think we still have a lot to do. And I think, again, it comes down to letter of the law and spirit of the law. So what's on paper is your call versus what do you do? I think is really the defining, the defining factor in that. Sure. It's interesting. There was a paper out of JAMA surgery. It was sort of this longitudinal study looking at medical students moving into their PGY2 year and looking at things contributing to burnout. And one of the things that they found, I can't remember if it was MJ Surge, was that, you know, not taking call as a medical student and then going into residency was associated with sort of career dissatisfaction and feelings of being unprepared. And it seems like across the country, it's sort of like, well, you're a clerk and yeah, you shouldn't be taking in-house call, but that's when the learning's taking place. And that's when the sick patients are coming. They're coming in overnights and they're coming in on weekends. Yeah. I mean, I think like anything else, right? Like there's a pendulum. I think we were on one end of the spectrum. I was in medical school before the ADR work week. It was enacted, I want to say my fourth year in medical school. So I think it was the first or the second class through on the ADR work week. And as you remember, when this ADR work week first came out, residency programs were pissed. It was like, yep, you're still going to do Q2. You're just going to report Q3. They, you know, We were trialing all these duty hour reporting things, right? So it's been interesting to go from that to, you know, now, I think the second thing with this is EMR. When I look back at my medical school, I went to medical school at the University of Tennessee in Memphis. I was the most prepared for internship that you could bid. I was doing Q2, <laughs> like I was assigned my resident. I did their call schedule. Um, I was Q2 to Q3. I wrote all the orders because all on paper. I wrote all the orders. I knew the dosages of all your common medications. Oh. I wrote all the HMPs. So when I started my intern year, it wasn't about how do I write an HMP? How do I be efficient? How do I, I don't know the dose for Tylenol or Norco or Oxy or Protonix, right? Like I, I feel like, and then with the advent of EMR, we don't let them do anything. I know. It's so then it hits July 1. We have protected oh. them. We've not, and I don't mean in a, I mean, I we should protect them to a certain extent. They're learners, right? But we've overprotected, I think, mm-hmm. to a certain extent in that they're not taking call. They're sent home immediately after a certain period of time. They don't put orders in. They don't have real responsibilities. In a lot of places, I mean, they show up and they might write some HMPs, but it's different when you are an inpatient peds and you are with your intern and you're getting 24 admits overnight. And I have to go see these, you know, you got to the point you walked in the room, right? With your intern, 
he or she did the interview and I would walk out and hand them the HMP. They would review it, edit it. And while they're doing that, I'm writing the admin ADC Van Dimmels. But that's when you learned a lot of your efficiency and a lot of even just your basic, how you take care of things. And we've just delayed it so much that I do. I think these medical students, and it's, it's not that they're weak. It's not that they don't have resiliency. I mean, I'm, I'm so sick of that, you know, it's, and they're not that they're not hardworking. Their work looks different and it is still hard. And I also think a little bit of the same thing with our residents and fellows, right? Same thing. They've got our protections. We don't. I mean, at some point when you choose a career that's going to take up a significant percentage of your life, significant percentage of your day and nights and weekends for the rest of your life, you have to make sure it's the right fit. And I do think we have some work to do. So I'm not saying that we are necessarily doing it right either, but I do think that we've got a mismatch there and it's not because they're weak. It is not because they're lesser than it is a different landscape being and attending now versus even when I was training, right? Remember, and you'd like, you'd get a cart and you put all the like rounding, you get a cart, you put all the paper on it, oh, you just yeah. walk around and they would just sign it. Mm-hmm. They weren't doing hours of documentation a day. That is now what you do as an attending. And we talk about burnout. I mean, I will say me personally, my bias, EMR is a huge part of it. We are not burned out oh, because yeah. we're taking call or just because we're taking call. We're burned out. We're not burned out by taking care of our patients. We're burned out on all the paperwork and the red tape that is required to take care of our patients. In my opinion. No, I completely agree. And I think not a single day goes by where I don't actually see someone or hear another physician complaining about just the undue burden and necessities of documentation and coding that comes along with the EHR, which people have to realize is going to infringe upon our time with patients. And heaven forbid you're an ICU nurse. I mean, have you seen the kind of documentation that they need to do? Whatever happened to the good old days when we had that, you know, flip sheet and you can just look at all the vitals and trend things and know exactly what was going on. Now I've got to go through the EHR and try to figure out how to make sure that the actual from left to right is going in the right time sequence that I wanted to. And I can only see a certain amount of data at any given time. And so, yeah, I, I completely agree. I think the EHR has really, I think for the the bean counters and billing and reimbursement has been great. But in terms of actual contributions to clinical care, pretty minimal, pretty minimal. And I think that that's the thing that I get so frustrated by. You know, we get sometimes, uh, particularly in surgery, I'll say, we get some older uh, generation surgeons who are like, what's wrong with you guys with burnout? And I'm like, my life doesn't look like your life 20 years ago. The amount of supervision I have to provide. I don't just walk in now or not even show up and just let like chief residents aren't operating independently now. Right. 20 years ago, a lot of attendings for level one traumas were not getting up in the middle of the night unless they had to operate. 
And now if they were in the hospital, right. And now it's, you got to be there within 10 minutes. You got to be there within 15 minutes. Um, the documentation, it's not that today's surgeon or today's student or today's fellow is weak or not dedicated or doesn't love trauma surgery or medicine. It's the soul crushing nature of the busy work, the work that we don't feel is important that we have to do to do the important work. That's why burnout is high. All of a sudden, you know, there wasn't this massive like weakening of the human genome where now everyone's weaker <laughs> than they were 30 years ago. Right. Totally. We know more, right? Yep. We're processing CT scans, MRIs. We have more data to interpret. We know more. There's just physically more knowledge and more information, more red tape, more EMR, more stuff other than be just being at the patient's bedside. And I think that has to be acknowledged. And on the topic of being at the patient's bedside, Dr. Coleman, who was on call uh, the day of our interview, did have to take off to address uh, patient care concern. But I do want to say thank you so much, Dr. Coleman, for joining us on Rounds. And thank you for tuning in. If you like what you're hearing, make sure you share it with us and the world. You can go to iTunes or wherever you normally download your podcast from. And make sure to leave us some positive feedback and comments. Please also be sure to visit us at TraumaICURounds.com. Check out the show notes. If you have any ideas or thoughts about future episodes, we're totally open. You can email us at traumaicurounds at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, keep reading, take care of yourselves and one another. (laughs) 